Welcome to the Green Majority, which we are calling Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, because those are the facts we've been given. And we're on CIUT 89.5 FM, More Facts. And we also appreciate other community radio stations that play us. And I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Hold what? Whoa. Excuse me. Do you have something to say? Oh, I was going to say that you can know that we're the, the, the longest running environment news hour because this is our 800th episode. Oh, right, right. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, this is Green Majority's 800th episode. Started in like 2006 or something, which is why it's Canada's longest running environmental news hour because it's been around. Like how many episodes of like the Ellen DeGeneres show are there? Like we have to be, we're giving Ellen a run for her money. <laughs> we got a bunch of environmental news today, a whole bunch of environmental news. And then Stefan is interviewing uh, Mr. Deacon. What? Max Deacon. Max Deacon about EarthNet, which is a climate uh, social media uh, site platform app that's being developed. But first, Lauren is in Ottawa and Stefan is also pissed. And they desire to speak about the convoy of large vehicles and angry Canadians that have uh, that have gathered. Yeah, I currently live in the Hellmouth, and it sucks. <laughs> the sad, mad cry fest that rolled into Ottawa over the weekend to either protest not being allowed to go to the mall or to violently replace our government and replace it with fascists, depending on who in the convoy you were speaking to. For example... The convoy's use of, quote-unquote, freedom side-by-side with the fascistic symbols of oppression, which dovetails with the participants' demands that their rights not be impinged on while also verbally abusing anyone wearing a mask in the downtown core to the point where the police have advised people to not wear masks outside. Real thing they did. Which also connects to the double standards of the police calling this both a peaceful protest and also, quote, too dangerous to move. Some... These things don't work. It also stirs up in those of us who desperately want want those living in Ottawa to be safe while also not wanting to further empower the police. And then layered on top of these is is the breathless coverage from the mainstream media, despite how much smaller this was than many many other protests, and the origins of the $10 million that flowed through the GoFundMe campaign, most of them hidden behind fake uh, accounts or a lot of it coming from Canada's release, really, I would say most. This is a protest that vastly inflated its power through the use of giant greenhouse gas emitting machines and declared their right to impose in a way that seemingly the powers that be have just simply accepted. And so the question boils down to me is why? And the answer, or at least one of the answers I think, is that this is a colonial capitalist protest of a colonial capitalist system which means those in power, the police, some politicians, and much of the legacy media see themselves in the protesters and then react accordingly. The protest finds well-worn grooves in our society because because the stories it tells are Canadian stories. And I don't mean that in a positive sense, but rather in the sense that that Canada's story is one largely of forced displacement by those with more power who are willing to use it indiscriminately against those who, are the, who they perceive as lesser, all while tailing resource destruction in its wake. A fetishization of individualism that is expressed by the right to spend capital, but one that also holds the inherent colonial attitude that they should be able to dictate how others should live as well. But what it has done, in part, has shown the shallowness of the reforms on the Canadian state 
that they are now protesting. No amount of additional funds to the Ottawa police would have prevented this outcome. No amount of capitulating to those who hold anti-mask or anti-vaccine views would have prevented this outcome. And if what we learn from this is to more quickly and violently crack down on protests, the only people who will win the long run are those who are behind this convoy. And so what is there to be done? Quite simply, organize. Turn to your neighbors, your community, and ask yourself how to build a network that can support itself when we are inevitably let down by the state. And furthermore, we must begin to see what might feel like disparate movements as really one united front. I came across a tweet today from Amy Westervelt, uh, who in my mind is one of the top climate thinkers out there, which stated, quote, you know who doesn't separate race, labor, and equity? The right wing. You look at Koch, Bradley, Le Le Leonard, Leo, and his crew. They're weaving all the parts of the conservative agenda together while, while we're over here talking about how justice is too much to ask for. The same folks who are working on voter suppression and capital and fighting critical race theory and claiming COVID is a hoax and banning books are the ones who have worked to block climate policy for decades. Not the same types of people, the literal same people and organizations. Good luck fighting that with batteries and charts. And she's talking primarily here about America, obviously, but the forces are the same here and the same dynamics are at play which is why organizing for climate justice is the only path forward. If a response is not holistic, it will be seen as inadequate at the jump, because it will be. And if there is anything the climate movement should have learned over its history, and if there's anything that we have learned over the 800 episodes the show has aired, it's that losing less slowly is not a rallying cry. Play to win. Organize to build the world you want, not the world you think someone might let you have. But to you, Lauren. You raised so many good points, Stefan. And, and the thing is, it's like what's been happening in Ottawa over this last week really has sort of resulted in a bit of a moment of reckoning for the progressive movement and for sort of like so-called leftists in this section of the world. I hesitate to call it a country. I always do. But and, and I think it's because we're seeing such devotion and dedication to the cause being demonstrated by those on the right. And in a way, it's a devotion that we sometimes don't always see reflected in the left. And it's really, I know it's, it's a small group. It's a minority. It's, it's only a couple thousand people who were on the Hill over the weekend. And it's, and, and if you look on the Facebook groups and stuff, it's, it's only a couple hundred thousand people on who are following on social media, but like, it's, it's a really, really vocal really, as I said before, dedicated, uh, population. And it's giving me pause and making me wonder, like, how do we harness that dedication and passion and anger on the left? Because by no means do we, we don't believe the same things. We don't want to act in the same way whatsoever. And this isn't in no ways is me expressing admiration for the kinds of displays of violence that we're seeing in Ottawa. But what it is making me do is making me wonder, like, what is it that the left is doing wrong that we're not able to tap into that sort of revolutionary energy the way these goombas on the hill are? And that's not even tapping into, like, as somebody who lives in the city, the knowledge that, like, nobody's coming to save you. The mayor isn't going to do anything about these people being here. The police aren't going to do anything about them being here. So, like, 
to a degree, like we're, we're being left on our own as a community to figure out solutions to there. There are a lot of like mutual aid groups that have really stepped up to provide safe spaces for people to go to, to provide, um, secure walking buddies for people to walk with. Because like you said, like you can't even wear a mask outside in certain parts of the city right now without being hassled or harassed or physically harmed. There's some really awful videos circulating of, of these people, like physically harassing and physically harming folks that live in Ottawa. So like, it's, it's not a safe place to be the municipal and federal and provincial government isn't working hard to make it a safe place to be. So, so the community stepping up. So what is really awesome to see is the ways in which those, the, the sort of like the mutual aid faction of, of the progressive movement is, is stepping up as they always do. Um, and, and I think the other thing, this is all stuff that we have seen before. The beast that is rearing its ugly head right now isn't a new beast. It's been here before. We fought it before. We can do it again. And it sucks that we have to do it again, but we can. And like you said, like we have to, and we have to come up with a better rallying cry than like, meh. To me, a little bit feels a little bit like, you know, the most obvious other thing I would go to is January 6th. Not so much because of it's like, you know, because they're actually going to overthrow or break into things, which they might, but more so just like, the way that it also sort of was allowed to happen, you know, the way that the fact, the narrative of these people allow them to get so far beyond and, you know, they're protected by their, you know, honestly, whiteness it, to allow themselves to get into these spaces that no one else would be able to do. Like there was a video I think a couple days ago of the protesters rolling around gigantic canisters of gas to bring them to their trucks. And police officers were guiding them the directions and, and, and basically doing logistics for them. And it's like, in what other world would you allow people occupying your city who have stated that their goal is to overthrow the government? In, there are active people who are leading this movement who have made that one of the goals. Move around gigantic explosive flame balls and it's only because a it's normalized because this idea because we somehow allow vehicular manslaughter vehicular violence to be more normal than regular violence and b these are the these are colonial uh, expectations and in some ways the idea of these these white dudes is some is not threatening to the state because the state is that they no, are the state. Earlier this afternoon, I was listening to a press conference that was being put on by the city. It had the mayor, it had the chief of police, it had a few other spokespersons there. And at that press conference, it was made really clear by the chief of police that, like, I think they specifically said there is no policing solution to this problem. They made it really clear that they will not be going in and removing anybody. They will not be towing cars. They will not be engaging in mass arrest, which, like you said, in some ways is a good thing because we don't want to set the precedent of, like, really strong police force in the face of, of, of protest. Like there, there is a world in which I completely agree with that because I am somebody who like <laughs> tries my best to accept and embrace and promote an abolitionist perspective. But at the same time, we also understand that that level of grace and that level of nonviolence would not be extended to leftist or progressive protesters. Like even as somebody who like, I don't know, when I was like 21 or 22 engaged in like a pretty, a pretty theatrical 
um, arrestable action on the Hill, but like, nonetheless, they arrested like a couple, like, I think, I think they arrested a hundred young people for being in a specific spot of parliament Hill that they were told they couldn't go in. And it's like, so sorry, you, you were able to find an arrestable offense for those a hundred kids, but you're not able to find any version of an arrestable offense for the thousands of people who have not just been like camping out and taking up space and disturbing the peace, but like actively harassing members of the community. And the police and the, the police chief was basically like, we need people to, we need community members to, to report these offenses and call them in and get in touch with us because I can't arrest anybody and I can't charge anybody unless I first have something reported to me. It's like, cool. So not only like you're not doing anything and now you're accusing the community of not doing enough either. Like, and then, sorry, this is, it, it blows my mind. So outside of the, the sort of the downtown core, but still within the sort of urban confines of the city is the municipal baseball diamond where like the minor league baseball team plays, um, not as big and fancy as the blue Jays, but like more than little league kind of thing. And within that parking lot, it's a really big parking lot. The convoy has set up their, like their, their rations and their supplies, their food, their water, their incontinence diapers, because none of them have accessible bathrooms. Like this is their, their kind of their storage space. And one of the reporters on this press conference was like, Hey, just a question. Why are you allowing them to do that when they don't have a permit to be there? And they're trespassing by like camping out here. And the response from the police force was, Oh, well, if they don't have that, then they're going to be going into grocery stores and making life harder for, for community members in center town. And it's like, but they're already making life hard for community members in center town. Those people already like it, it's, it's nuts to like the, the lack of willingness to truly condemn and halt any of this behavior can only be taken as like, not only tacit, but like enthusiastic support of what they're, of, of, of this behavior that's on display. And I guess it's just sort of really, it's like the lines are being drawn in the sand in terms of like, who is on your side and who isn't on your side. And as a result, who is on the side of, of, of like sort of the progressive movement and who isn't. And I mean, we've always known it wasn't the police, but like, it really, it really is not the police. They are not here to help us. They're here to help them. That I think is a, is a, is a good answer for the question of like why leftist movements aren't as like largely celebrated by Canada. Right. Canadian culture as this one is because people don't have to sacrifice that much to participate in this rally. They can go there and be comfortable. Whereas whereas progressive rallies, you're probably going to get assaulted by the police. And so it's much harder to to celebrate that kind of action because you know that you're putting yourself in harm's way to join a progressive movement versus something like this. All right, so we're going to do some music break and then we'll come back with environmental news. All right, we're back with the Green Majority doing environmental news. You're being uh, alone. Uh is important and has a validity beyond any philosophy. 
Archaeologists have discovered that humans began burning fossil fuels at least as far back as 1300 BC, after finding traces of brown coal stains on ancient teeth. A new report from the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit is showing that UK Prime Minister David Cameron's cuts to green programs are now costing households in the UK £1.5 billion per year. Cameron cut home insulation measures in 2013, and families in the UK are now paying more for energy as a result. The ecologist notes that the UK has the worst insulated homes in Europe. Oil Change International writes that despite pledges, the US, Norway, and Canada are going to produce more oil this year than they ever have. Biden is drilling for more oil than Trump. Canada's tar sands oil production is increasing, even as large corporations pull out. And Norway is expanding exploration to further develop its petroleum industry. The Biden administration, however, was recently stopped from issuing a whole bunch of new drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico because the sale of the leases uh, would result in a lot more carbon emissions than the government was officially predicting. So a court actually said, you haven't taken into account the, the downstream emissions of these leases. The uh, government reviews, official government environmental reviews, had argued that not selling the leases would result in more emissions than selling them, because other less environmentally friendly countries would extract and sell more fuel instead. The city of Los Angeles has voted to phase out oil drilling. L.A. has the highest concentration of urban oil fields in the U.S. A new study out of Harvard, published in the journal Nature Energy, has for the first time ever linked premature deaths of people 65 and up with living near natural gas fracking projects. Amidst a rise in cases brought against animal rights activists in the U.S., Government attorneys have been blocking all evidence of animal mistreatment from entering courtrooms. Activists on trial for stealing away sick animals from factory farms, for instance, have not been allowed to use any images or evidence of the torturous conditions the animals are living in in their defense. Eight members of Congress from the Democratic Party have written a letter asking cryptocurrency mining companies about their impacts on climate change. Since China cracked down on these companies, it is expected that more of them will, com- will come to North America. The Hill quotes uh, the letter as follows, quote, Given the extraordinarily high energy usage and carbon emissions associated with Bitcoin mining, mining operations raise concerns about their impacts on the global environment, local ecosystems, and consumer electricity costs. States like Texas, with relatively cheap electricity costs, are experiencing an influx of crypto mining companies, raising concerns that the state's unreliable electricity market and the potential for crypto mining to add to the stress of the state's power grid, the stress on the state's power grid. The province of Alberta has also been dealing with the shifty tactics of cryptocurrency generators as a company called Link was found to be operating gas plants without approval. The company was found to be generating a significant amount of electricity to power other people's Bitcoin mining, which is against the law since companies are only allowed to generate power for their own use. And usually that's a small amount of power. I won't subject us to a long Bitcoin rant. I had my one rant for this episode, so I'll move on from that. Except to say it is... Unsurprising that Bitcoin has decided that it 
Bitcoin miners have decided that they should not be bound by any rules and regulations and should instead just try to suck up as much money from the, from the, uh, from the, what's the word we were? No Ecosystem. <laughs> suck, 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 suck as much money as they can before, you know, dropping, moving on to something else. Sort of un, not too surprising. Uh, as, and especially bad because I think Texas in the next week is about to get hit by a really bad storm, which the governor in November came out and was like, ours we will definitely keep the lights on this winter and then a week ago was like we cannot guarantee we will keep the lights on this winter wow. so texas not doing well but the thing i want to talk on more specifically before thunder lauren which i think is something you also want to talk about is if folks have not ever if folks have not looked up la's urban oil fields you really should because they are both some of the most direct examples of environmental racism 73 percent of county residents who live near an oil well are people of color but they're also just completely dystopian in, in integration. Like these wells are really within the city. It's so weird. But anyways, to you, uh, Laura. No, I was literally just going to make the same like silly comments. Um, I went to LA a couple of years ago, just on like vacation with my partner. We actually, it was really nice. We did Joshua Tree in LA. It was cute. Um, but <laughs> drank a lot of green juice. No, the oil wells are everywhere. And it's so weird because it's like, I don't know. I feel like you feel like, you know, LA it's in every movie. It's in every TV show. It's talked about all the time. It's very much like this, like, I don't know, not only is it a city, but it has, it's like a weird cultural phenomenon, personality and persona. And then you go there and you're sort of just driving down the street and you're like, wait a second, is that an oil rig? Like a Derek, I think. And like, it literally does look like an oil Derek from like, there will be blood or something. Like it's, 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 it almost looks like something out of a cartoon or something out of a movie because it's so bizarre to see it just within the city limits, like a hundred feet away from the side of the highway or from the road. So like good that good that they are phasing out oil drilling period. Cause like that's beneficial from a climate standpoint, but also from like, I don't know, an environmental racism and well-being standpoint for this community, because I am sure there are myriad negative effects um, at having people live so close to these little mini weird oil derricks anyway so silly we can move on just stuck out to us yeah and it will stick out to you if you look at la a series of community climate discussions in new brunswick has highlighted the great benefits of even a modest basic income of two thousand dollars a month in creating resilience to climate change such income security will help everyone deal with environmental stress and it could also make xenophobic scapegoating less common, since people will have less anxiety in general. A letter written by Efficiency Canada has signed, and signed by various energy groups is urging the government to deal with poverty. The Energy Mix writes, quote, The letter says funding must prioritize poorer households that can't pay for energy upgrades or audits as a matter of social justice, and the country's most inefficient homes, to help people to help meet Canada's climate commitments. In northwest BC, First Nations along the Skeena River are calling on Canada to do something about overfishing in Alaska. Or rather, they're asking for uh, uh, themselves to be allowed to do something about it, perhaps. Uh, because fishers in BC are cutting down on their catch to help strengthen depleting salmon populations, but commercial operations in Alaska are not. Chief Joe Alphonse of the Silcotan Nation said, quote, 
Our nation has made huge sacrifices to conserve salmon over the years, including protecting the headwaters in our tidal lands where these salmon spawn. More importantly, our nation has implemented closures and denied our citizens their aboriginal right to fish, impacting our traditional way of life, our economy, and the mental and physical health of our peoples. We made these sacrifices because there were so few fish remaining in 2019 and 2020, only to learn that the drastic decline in returns was the result of major overfishing in Alaskan waters. We need to immediately review how the Pacific Salmon Treaty is structured and First Nations' role at such an important international table. We demand our own seat at the Pacific Salmon Commission to represent our Chilco fishery directly. And he added, this is what happens when others say they are looking after our interests. The Soxhuatl uh, Indian tribe in the States is suing the city of Seattle to force them to recognize that salmon have an inherent right to flourish as sentient beings. A new report prepared by the BC First Nations Energy and Mining Council has set up 25 recommendations for First Nations to take control of all mining on their territories. The recommendations are in response to British Columbia's failure to implement the UNDRIP legislation it has officially adopted. Gib Van Ert recently wrote of UNTRIP in the Taiyi, saying, quote, The UN Declaration is a historic, far-reaching international human rights instrument aimed at defining the rights of indigenous peoples everywhere. Uh, it addresses such fundamental matters as indigenous self-government, lands rights, uh, resource development, education, lawmaking, e lawmaking, economic and social conditions, and treaty rights, in short, almost every area of Canadian law. There is serious reason to think that many existing and federal and provincial laws are not consistent with the Declaration's requirements. The B.C. and federal governments are now required by law to correct these inconsistencies. A temporary two-year halting of B.C.'s rarest old-growth forest has been agreed upon by First Nations and colonial governments. At least four First Nations communities are taking control of education on their territories in B.C., the Pine Creek First Nation in Manitoba is suing the province to halt logging on their lands. Uh, Pine Creek Chief uh, Derek Nepenak said, quote, The days of simply taking wealth from our mountain while, uh, while our people cannot even get food for their families from our traditional lands are over. A new trespassing act in Saskatchewan is being challenged by the Treaty Land Sharing Network. The network said, quote, The trespassing act in Saskatchewan further criminalizes indigenous people practicing their way of life and exercising their treaty and inherent rights by requiring them to obtain permission from each landholder prior to accessing land. Five First Nations in Ontario have sent a letter to Environment Minister Stephen Guibault telling him to stop tokenizing the consultation process for development, for development of the Ring of Fire and give them equal partnership. The letter reads, quote, any attempt by the Crown to come back with less than the equality we have asked for and deserve, and which the fight against climate disaster needs, will be seen as nothing but an attempt to dress up a broken window with pretty drapes, and any such attempt will lead to our active enforcement of the moratorium issued last April. We have inherent jurisdiction to carry out our responsibilities here. We do not need the Crown's permission to do so. You baldly assert sovereignty here, but we have it. And finally, the Mi'kmaq Millbrook First Nation in Nova Scotia is fighting an Australian company that seeks to set up a dam to create an open-pit gold mine on their land. 
Uh, Chief Bob Glode said the mine would harm their community and only benefit foreign investors. I don't have a, have a ton here except to note that if anyone, when they first heard at the beginning of my rant, at the beginning of the show, say that what the truckers were espousing were Canadian was a Canadian kind of protest and disagreed and thought that perhaps we were better than that, I point to the last eight stories that Dave just included in there, each of which is an example of the Canadian state and members of it taking over a space and declaring it theirs and destroying it while they do. To reiterate, to make it clear, what, what we're saying is it's like that is literally exactly what these truckers have done here is that they've rolled into space that is, again, <laughs> yes, it is. It is a city that we acknowledge to be the nation's capital, but it also is like the unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. And it has been expressed by those hereditary chiefs of this region that like these truckers are not welcome here <laughs> they are not wanted here so like there is very much a i'm gonna like i'm i'm gonna classify it as like a state condoned occupation of this territory of this city because they haven't done anything to stop it if anything they've they've just acted to make it easier for them juxtaposed with yeah this constant fighting that indigenous peoples have to do just to assert their sovereignty and their treaty rights. Um, and just sort of highlighting that one last story is that uh, the the Mi'kmaq Millbrook First Nation in Nova Scotia um, fighting that Australian uh, company that wants to create an open hit gold mine on their land. I think that's a story we should probably like try really hard to follow in the coming like weeks and months because I feel like that's a big deal. And we oftentimes really tend to, when we do um, talk about uh, indigenous led land protection efforts, it's, it's oftentimes on the West and we tend not to focus on the East as much. So I think that's one we should, we should try to commit to, to following and highlighting as much as possible Though we should, we should talk about all of them, but yeah. So we're going to go to a music break now and come back with Stefan's discussion with Max Deacon about climate, social media, uh, what's it called? Earthnet? Earthnet. Earthnet, yeah. Earthnet right. I'm here with our interview, as previewed earlier, with Max Deacon, one of the founders of EarthNet. Thanks so much for joining us, Max. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. So we'll, we'll dive into EarthNet in just a second. But first, I'd love to get a little background on how you came to this work. So what was your entrance into climate work and climate awareness? And can you give us a bit of an introduction? Yeah, sure. So I'm, from, I'm originally from uh, the UK. And back in 2017, when I moved over to uh, British Columbia, where we, we drove around for a while and eventually settled in uh, Nelson, BC, which is a beautiful place. And if you haven't been there, I highly recommend it. 
But the 2017 and then 2018 as well, those summers were the one, well, they were the really, really smoky summers. And I guess that your listeners over in the East Coast would have felt some of that as well. And that really opened my eyes to climate change. Here, over here in the UK, you know, I don't think we feel it as viscerally, but back when we were in Nelson and I would step outside my house and not be able to see a hundred meters, I really felt like the world was coming to an end. So it was climate change in action. And, and so from, from there, we, I, uh, along with my partner, Rick Wachtenberg, we started an organization called Climate Caucus, which is a network of about 450 mayors and councillors from around Canada who are working on climate action. Everything from the people really pushing the envelope to what I term the climate curious. And yes, that was my foray into, into climate, really. And so from there to making EarthNet, which I actually, you know what? I was going to give a brief explanation of it, but I think it might be, I'd be more interested to hear actually how you'd first describe it. So if you had to describe it in like a couple sentences, how would you describe EarthNet? Yeah, EarthNet is a social network for the climate movement. It's, it's a place where you can go and connect with other people, other organizations, uh, ask questions, enter into and join a mutual support network of people working on climate action. You can, if you've got a project and you need to connect it with funding or expertise or resources, it's a place to go for that. And so we're trying to, we're trying to create connection with purpose. Cool. Because I've, I signed on and I dabbled a little bit and I had gotten the sense of social media, I would have, that's how I would have described it. It feels a lot like a social media for climate action, but it's interesting Mm -hmm. that you want to add in that element of being able to find funding and other supports into the social media. How do you plan on connecting those pieces? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are funders out there who are looking to, who have money and projects who need funding and by, and we're bringing together and uh, let you discover both sides of the things. So that's one of the elements, one of the things that differentiates EarthNet to LinkedIn or any other social network. Obviously, the, the, the focus on climate, but climate is a big issue. So we've broken up EarthNet into topic-based hubs. And the first topic-based hub we launched is the, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, is the Retrofits hub. So that's a place you can go to find out, to get help in your projects for building retrofits, to connect with others on building retrofits and push for policy change or retrofits, whatever it might be. And there are lots, we've got 95 or so hubs at the moment. Some of those sub-pumps, so the retrofit sub-pump might be heat pumps, and they're all really interconnected. Cool. And so what would you say the inspiration was? And, and why do you think it was so, why do you believe it's necessary and, and really important? Oh, great question. So when we would do, when we launched Climate Caucus, because it was a network of elected officials, we ended up talking to lots of different organizations in the cross the climate movement, both NGOs and public sector bodies and, and private companies. And what we noticed was a real lack of connectivity across people working on climate action, like lots of reinventing the wheel, lots of working in silos. And yeah, you know, oftentimes people doing exactly the same project as somebody else and, and not realizing and not sharing you know, best practice or experiences. So that, that was the inspiration for us when we, when we took it from there. Cool. So I'm going to go off script and ask you a, a bit of a follow-up question. You sort of mentioned you started with Climate Caucus and which was a network for 
elected officials and now moved to the broader populace. I wonder if there's anything you learned from building Climate Caucus that you've taken and, and brought into this project. Yeah, so yes, we learned quite a lot in building Climate Caucus that we've applied here. For example, one of the most useful things is for somebody who's working on a problem or a policy or a project, and they have a specific question, maybe that specific question answered, to, to be able to ask a group of people who are working in the same area and get advice or feedback from someone who's actually, who actually has experience in that. So your alternative is to Google it. And there's lots of, obviously there's lots of great stuff and resources out there and lots of great resource libraries. And we even built a resource library with Climate Caucus, but we found what was most useful is I ask a question and then someone else says, ah, the answer to that question is this. And we've tried to do that again. So each of these topic-based hubs are, are curated and they have a, a curator whose job is to make sure that questions get answered by the right experts and to, to, to if they need to create and force these connections. Eventually, we hope that these connections will happen by themselves, but the curator is really pushing for that. That's a unique thing in a social media to have people designed and meant to actually create connections. You know, there's not really someone on Facebook or Twitter who's going out and being like, hey, you tweeted this thing. Like the algorithm does it, but it's not so much a human individual of trying to really build and invest in the community being built. That's right. I think especially at the beginning of uh, a network, that's really important is to give it energy and momentum and excitement and make it more useful. The second thing is, and this is really relevant in the post Facebook world, is to keep the quality high, to make sure there's no fake news, we're, we're worried about greenwashing, and so to keep those, to keep it factual, keep it useful. It might be worth to take a step back and say something else actually there, which is that being, so EarthNet was born in a post Facebook world, and given that, and the controversies around social media. I think we can all agree it's very powerful social media and networking, but it's not always been for the good. Often social networks try and monetize attention and the algorithms are focused on profit making. Earthnet is different. Earthnet is a non-profit. It's owned by its users and all of the, and the users can have a say over the strategic direction and what happens. And there are democratic data policies and everybody owns their own data. So we try to do things completely differently and have it owned by the people using EarthNet. Cool. A second random question, which I, again, but only because I just finished reading Kim Stanley Robinson's book, Ministry of the Future. And within that, a very similar concept or idea of a social media is created. And so guys, did y'all read that book? Or is this sort of an interesting, like this coalescence of these two things? So the answer is, is the latter. We have, we have read the book, but only afterwards, because people would be like, hey, you should read this book. And it's, it's exactly, and we have taken some inspiration from it as well as we've gone, but it is an exciting yeah, coalescence of these two things. Cool. I mean, it makes sense, you know, from a standpoint of both, that's something that they would imagine and that's something that would get built. The book is such an odd combination of positive and negative. I was going to say, I can only hope that we actually solve the crisis in 30 years, but also there's so much death and destruction that is predicted within that novel that I have a hard time wishing for such a world. So pivoting back to EarthNet, in a world where everything goes, or eventually everything goes right, what's the grandest vision uh, for EarthNet that you can imagine or that you're striving for? Yeah, so great question. 
you know, in the perfect world, the entire global climate movement will be on Earth debt, swapping ideas and uh, connecting on their on their projects to share expertise, experiences, and resources. Not just within Canada, but which certainly that itself would make a real impact and be very exciting. But further afield, into the US, into Europe, into Asia Pacific, there's so much going on and so many great projects, but there isn't enough connectivity. So really spreading these. And, and in that way, we can much more quickly accelerate the speed of climate action. And it will get more and more useful the more people who are on it. And what the job of the curator will less become forcing those connections, because they will happen, and more keeping that quality high. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting also that what I don't think really has happened in a huge way for social media is no social media has really effectively solved the language problem in that it's still very rare, I find, to see people communicating back and forth in different languages. For all the social media bubbles we exist in, they almost always end up hitting the edges of whichever language they're being written in. Like occasionally they'll come across a tweet that you have to translate, but it's very rare that you see three or four different tweets that are each required a different translation. It's almost always within the same language. And that's an interesting challenge when you're trying to create a global movement to learn from each other, how that language issue will, I'm sure, be a, a thing to navigate. I think that's absolutely right. And that's definitely something we've been thinking about, not least because of the multi-languages in Canada, but also we've been talking to the UN Cities Race to Zero and, and organizations like C40 who are global and try to learn how cities learn from one another. So that that is, a, that is an important question. There's two parts to it. The first is the, the words in the app that are kind of fixed. They can be translated very easily. But obviously every single message, in the same way every single tweet, you couldn't have a person translating those. So at that point, we are turning to some of the increasingly sophisticated things like Google Translate. And there are lots of versions of these and they are becoming better and better and more and more natural. Because that's a big problem is that you read the tweet, you translate the tweet and it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense. And that is improving over time. Yeah, for sure. I remember that there was that one time, maybe like 70 years ago, where Google Translate made that huge leap of improvement. And I was like, go try translating stuff. It's so much better now. I can only imagine it's increasing. So another pivot here to maybe back to the personal, which is, it's a question that we've been ruminating on on the show really for the last eight months now, which is about climate anxiety. And interesting that you started with the forest fires uh, in BC because this conversation just began when here, at least in here in Canada, after the after Lytton and the heat wave in, in BC, there was just the end of last summer was actually a really dark time, I found, for a lot of climate activists. And so began collecting answers to this question, which is, you know, do you suffer climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah, good, good question. So yes, I do. I think overall, I am positive uh, and optimistic about the ability of people coming together to make the changes needed. And, and as technology improves, in particular technology, both for renew creating renewable energy and carbon capture and on and on and on. So I think I'm overall optimistic. <laughs> That's important, otherwise I've become very sad. I certainly experience climate guilt. I love skiing, which is why I went over to BC, but obviously you can't ski in the UK and that requires 
either a, a plane trip to somewhere else or increasingly take the train, which is good. But certainly <laughs> climate guilt is plays heavy. So for those who have now heard the sort of want to check it out and try it out, I presume it's an open, like I, I, I logged on without much difficulty. So I presume others could as well. How can folks get connected to EarthNet and, and learn more? Yeah, for sure. Everybody, so everybody who, who is thinking about climate uh, or conservation as, as part of their work, or whether you work in a local government or NGO or, or private sector, we want you to be part of it. So you can go to earthnet.world, E-A-R-T-H-N-E-T.world, and sign up there. And if you want to see the Retrofits Hub, as an example, you can go to retrofits.world and, and check that out. And you can read the conversations and see what's happening. If you want to join in, you have to sign up. So that's earthnet.world. And I would also say that if you want to get in, you know, get involved or, or talk to me, feel free to reach out. We'll, we'll include my email. Thank you so much uh, for being here. We'll give you a last word in half a second. But before I do, this has been Max Deacon, one of the founders of EarthNet. Thanks so much for joining us. And yeah, like to give our guests an opportunity to give one last shout out to the community that listens, which spreads roughly across Canada, actually. So if you have anything to say, take it away. Yeah, I, I think there's a quote that has sat with me as we've been, as we've been building EarthNet, which is, which is as follows. When we dream alone, it's only a dream. But when many dream together, it's the beginning of a new reality. And, and that's what we're trying to do with EarthNet is really bring or everybody's dreams together and in that way create a whole new future for ourselves.